0: You are listening to The Transport, episode 14. The funeral home is next door. The Transport by Alex Ames. You are listening to The Transport. A sci-fi military action thriller audiobook podcast, written and performed by Alex Ames. The music throughout the podcast is the song The Last True Boss by Kumiku, available on the freemusicarchive.org. Chapter 47 Charles Dusk fell over the desert, another complication. Charles' knees were knocking before his first ever glider flight. The instructor, a drill sergeant with sick humor, had explained the composite construction that held the sailcloth wing and the control triangle. A harness, kept the pilot attached to the glider frame, and the thermobag warmed the body at great heights. Sergeant Whittaker received the same instruction from a different instructor, 20 yards away. The rest of the three other designated pilots, including Morales, had gone already through the training, but listened anyway for a refresher. She's a well-behaved girl. Don't do too much. Gentle touches... Curves slow you down. Slow down means quicker decline. Quicker decline means less distance. Less distance means... The man looked at Charles expectantly. A long walk, I get it. Slow moves. What about thermic races? The legendary thermic races. Our glider models have very low lift to drag ratio and enable you to utilize even small air races that come your way. Thermals are only one condition. There's also rigid lift or wave lifts depending on your geography and weather conditions. The altitude indicator here will show you. Your squadron leader will decide whether to exploit it or not. During night you might get unlucky, hence your high-altitude approach that guarantees your travel distance. Will the instrument work in the zone? Charles asked. We think. The device is mechanical, just in case you wonder. Is it readable in the dark? It's self-illuminated, like the other devices too. Your glasses might pose a challenge, but don't worry. Charles took them off, but he couldn't even see twenty yards ahead, so he put them on again. Sir, I worry. The maiden flight instruction happened in a whirl of commands, stress and acceleration. A propeller plane with extremely wide wings had been assembled on the highway. It slowly started moving and pulled at Charles' glider on a long flexible line that looked extremely thin and fragile. Charles had to trot, then run as fast as he could, pulled the handle forward and the wind caught under his sail. And off the ground he was, flying faster and faster, the plane almost hundred yards in front, not flying yet. Speed picked up and finally the plane rose into the air too. Its extra wide wingspan made it possible to fly at extremely low airspeed. The instructor's voice came on in Charles' helmet. Well done, son. You took off without being killed. Now it's phase two. Staying in the air without being killed. You are now already at a thousand feet, enough for our training to commence. Release the tow line. Release the line, Charles confirmed and pulled the lever in front of him that let go of the nylon line and disconnected him from the pull of the plane. The line vanished from view, reeled in by an unseen mechanism, and the starter plane immediately made a turn to land again. Desert and highway stretched out below, the makeshift army camp and the truck stop, some hills to the south. Whitaker was already put into position for his own training. This was almost like a holiday. Charles remembered his task at hand and reported. Line released. All right. Fly straight. Familiarize yourself with your altitude and rate of decline. Check your surroundings and your course. The sequence must come naturally to you. Fly, course, surroundings. Altitude, decline rate. Fly, course. Charles oriented himself and his eyes jumped back and forth between surroundings and instruments. 1,100 feet altitude, 30 knots airspeed, 10 feet per second down. Charles felt like Icarus. The wind was tearing at his face, but he was gliding silently through the evening air, the sun already touching the horizon, turning the desert below him into a fiery sea. He understood why people loved that sport. The instructor led Charles through some basic manoeuvres, steering left, steering right, slowing the glide, speeding up, reading the instruments. Understanding the instruments, the glider worked as advertised, an easy-to-fly device that did what you asked it to do. 500 feet altitude, 5 feet per second decline, Charles read. The ground appeared pretty close already. Now you do the 180-degree turn. You're halfway down, so you'll need the rest of the altitude to make it back home to us. Charles managed to move the steering bar, felt the glider reacting, and oriented himself, did some necessary corrections. Very well, you are aiming straight at us. Whenever you come down, try to come down on the asphalt again, much easier on the ankles. Phase three has started. Not to get killed while landing, Charles guessed. Actually, with the glider, no one gets killed while landing. Your speed and altitude are too low. Once you are flying below ten feet, you only break some bones." And I was so worried, Charles muttered. The most complicated procedure was to free his legs from the bag, which meant controlling the glider with only one hand for a few seconds. There were some warning shouts over the comm from the instructor, but Charles managed to get things under control again and prepared for the last hundred yards of flight. He made it below ten feet, and then simply let the glider starve in the air, pushing the steering handle slightly forward to slow down, and let, then let gravity do the work. His feet touched the ground, and he started to run again. He forgot the instructor's commands, and accidentally pulled the control handle towards himself. The nose of the glider immediately hit the ground. Charles was wiped off his feet when the whole apparatus stopped instantly. Perfect landing, when we ignore the last second of your flight, the instructor said. Congrats, you are now certified to fly. Hell, yeah, Charles raised his fist, saluting the guards of the air, though his ass hurt like hell. Morales and the glider instructor came up to Charles and helped him disentangle himself from the paraglider's harness. You made it, sir, Morales said. I just had an idea, but you might not like it. You are the boss, sir. Does the motor plane that will bring us up have a parachute on board? And are the steering controls mechanical? Charles asked. Yes, on both count, sir, the training instructor confirmed. I want that plane to pull our gliders as far as possible into the zone. Any mile will count to bring us closer to ground zero. The plane might crash and pull one of you down with it before you're able to release the line, sir, the instructor pointed out. That's a risk we will take. The soldiers looked at each other. Morales nodded, and the instructor left to bring the good news to the pilot of the tower plane. Morales turned to Charles. By the way, the president wants to talk to you before liftoff. They walked towards the command tent. By the way? Charles mocked her. Didn't that sound so cool? Charles sat at a ruggedized laptop that looked as if it could survive the next Ground Zero alongside the cockroaches and aunts and put on a headset. A voice came through. Please stand by for the president. Please clear the room, Dr. naman Charles turned and looked at his audience. Can you give me the room, a uh, tent, please? everyone, and make sure no one eavesdrops outside. The military personnel shuffled out dutifully. Life could be easy sometimes. All clear. The president came on. Doctor, we understand you will join the incursion. A good choice. You know the project best. You will figure something out. Yes, sir. What else could he say? Listen, Charles, I'm giving this straight to you, we have no idea what we are in for. Our intelligence analysts and military brains played with various scenarios during the last few hours. I made the executive decision to go with the worst-case scenario. Aliens plan to fly away with the ship. The president cleared his throat. That is a possibility. I agree, Mr. President. The spaceship will not leave our planet under my watch. Period. I don't care if it is indeed aliens, the Russians, ISIS, or a bunch of disgruntled office workers. It will not get away. I understand, Mr. President, Charles said again. A hollow feeling grew in his stomach. Uh Uh-oh, this sounds worse and worse. Son, I will place a terrible burden on you, but you and the Green Berets will be our first team on the ground, and we can't support you, nor can't we communicate. Try to re-establish communication again. Get the spaceship back under our control. Prevent a takeoff by any means necessary. That's it. Concentrate on these objectives. I understand. You do not yet. Here's the ugly part, Charles. The president hesitated. Within the next 30 minutes, we will have two stealth bombers circling beside the no-go area at Great Heights. Each carries four bombs. The moment we have a chance to bring the payload in a controlled and functional fashion to the ground, those bombs will fall, targeting tin can. Charles remained silent. The president continued. I might go down in history as the president who bombed U.S. soil and killed many innocent civilians and our own military personnel. But I will not be remembered as the man who let the aliens go without a fight and gave them an opportunity to have a comeback or revenge scenario. Humankind can't take that risk. You want us to start some sort of evacuation? Charles asked. We will not evacuate. You will concentrate on your three goals. Nothing else matters. If your team fails, we all will fail. On the table in front of you is a special satellite phone. Compact, but powerful. We remotely modified it. As soon as the communication disruption in the zone is over, it will ring and you will be connected directly to the situation room. Dial any number, you'll talk to us too. If the threat is over, you'll tell us immediately and I'll call off the bombers. Will do, sir. However, we don't hear from you and see the ship taking off, we will engage the bombs. Charles felt as if someone was pushing down his shoulders. Shall we get our teams out of the way in time, he asked. The president hesitated. That will not be possible, because, Charles, you see, the bombs will be nuclear devices. Charles closed his eyes. Half an hour later, Charles and Morales stood among three mean-looking green berets in a semicircle, lighted only by the headlights of a jeep. Charles was still shell-shocked. He was flying into certain doom. "'Are you sure you're able to fly?' Morales had asked when the death-white Charles had reappeared from the tent. "'Jitters,' Charles had just said. "'Get the mission going.' The Instructure Sergeant addressed the team for a last briefing. All right, Greenhorns, you are before your first operational hang glider incursion. We can't promise you success. Some of you might get killed, but you understood Doc Norman. We need to get you close to the bad guys and have some mean ass eyes on the ground. You are traveling at night. We will bring you as close as possible to Veracity, the closest town near Ground Zero. The plane will pull all five lines simultaneously, a true high-wire act. The most talented of you fly the flanks. The two rookies are left and right of Morales who flies point and is the master navigator. Don't lose sight of her. She has glow markings on her glider sails that gives you an indication where she is. Should the plane go down due to power failure or crash, You'll need to disengage your towering cable immediately, otherwise you will be pulled down too, with all consequences. One more thing that could go wrong. The instructor looked around, but no questions came back. During pull-up phase, you will do your utmost to keep the distances left and right plus 100 feet altitude difference. The lines are long enough, don't entangle among each other. Lieutenant Morales will try to pick a good spot to land on a road, a parking lot, but that's not guaranteed. Might be a rocky piece of desert with all sorts of opportunities to break a leg, arm or neck. Lieutenant, I'll do my best to pamper you guys, Morales took over. We'll do the old-fashioned magnetic compass navigation. Our tests indicated that this works. Veracity is a fairly big place, and we'll have the dry bed of Lake Summit as a halfway marker, which should be recognizable from a few miles up in the moonlight. But, as things are, practice might not hold up to the theory, and we might end up in Vegas instead. Viva, Whittaker sang. Morales looked at Charles. We are good to go, Doc. Now would be a good time for any last words. The instructor and any non-flying staff got the cue and left them alone. Charles cleared his throat and looked at the team of Green Berets. Four pair of eyes were on him, all expecting the worst. The transport battalion had the order to move a large device from A to B. The device was a spaceship, not from Earth, a real ship from outer space, If there had been professional preparedness in the eyes of the team, now it was exchanged with steely looks on Charles. An unknown force has hijacked the spaceship. Our mission? Establish communication, get it under our control again, prevent at all costs the ship from leaving Earth. Any questions? Whitaker raised his arm. Spaceship, I heard right. Like from outer space, spaceship? The very same, Charles confirmed. Morales gave Charles a very long look, but no retort or quip. Any aliens to consider? While I'm saying this, I sound like I'm taking drugs. I had the same reaction when my former boss told me first. Charles shook his head. Aliens had not been in the equation, from what we know. So far, we discovered the ship in the 50s, investigated it for a while, we were never able to open it up, and were ready to move it to a new location. No aliens were ever found, but who am I to know, I am just the spaceship guy. But someone took over the ship. Someone stole the ship's transport, that we know. We do not know if they have control over the ship. Whitaker lifted his hand. What about weapons? The zone is the result of some sort of weapon. The rest we don't know. Morales looked into the round. All right, that is heavy stuff to digest during a night flight. As a consequence, do not believe anyone you see in the zone. We don't know the lay of the land and treat anyone inside as enemy combatants. Maybe the whole town of Veracity is a secret alien colony. Look, if that's your idea of a pep talk, you just bombed it, Whittaker remarked. Charles brought the meeting to an end. Questions? None came. Let's go. Eh, fly. The group spread out towards the prepared gliders. Morales gives Charles another long look. A ship from outer space. Great job you have. Everyone dressed up in thick thermosuits face masks and gloves that were specially coated to allow optimal grip on the glider's control bar. Charles immediately started sweating in the desert evening heat the second the zipper was pulled up by an aide. Some advanced crew had cleared the side of the road as best as possible from bushwork and rocks to give the team running space. Everyone had weapons and ammunition, and the staff sergeant responsible for the equipment had made sure that every glider carried approximately the same weight. Charles concentrated. Two soldiers left and right of each hang glider's frame held the construction upright and supported the startup. The starter plane revved up its motor and slowly started moving. In the dark, all they could see were the blinking position lights, The towing line, slowly lost its slackness, became taut, and Charles could sense the pull. Run, he shouted, and they set in motion to follow. The glider's sail filled up, and when Charles saw running Morales, some yards ahead to the left, pull her handlebar forward, he shouted, rotate, so that the two jogging soldiers at his wingtip released the wings. Immediately, the glider took off. This time the starter plane pulled much stronger than during the training, which meant a much higher force to pull at Charles. His stomach dropped into a bottomless pit as he soared up into the sky. 3. Veracity. Chapter 48 Sina The transport medium of choice was the captured school bus, of course. With the help of Mac's map reading skills and Sina's driving abilities, the army group took a bumpy farm road that avoided any contact with civilization. Slow going, but no one wanted to take the risk of another trap or an encounter with the transport. The bus's headlights bore yellow holes into the young desert night, shooing away various critters and animals. A low-reddish glow in the east indicated the possibility that they had left the transport behind. They hit Veracity city limit around 8 p.m. and Sina drove the yellow school bus straight into town center. It was dark, but the stars and moonlight washed the roads in grey. The street lights out of order. Houses seemed to have electricity, though. Dimmed lights shone through closed blinds. People holding in. A rare car. Few people on the streets, mostly talking to each other, a lot of them still with their useless smartphones in hand, apparently discussing the lasting outage and the effects on their lives. Here and there, a group of youth roamed the street with doubtful intentions. Most shops were closed, and those that were open had someone with a shotgun guarding it, like the electronic store they passed while riding towards the center. Someone's expecting a riot over TVs and iPhones? Casper asked. Looters will come, Max said grimly. When you can't call the law, people become courageous in a weird way. So it was not only us who lost communications, Sina pointed out. It happened to the town, too. Makes you wonder how far the outage reaches, Max said. Sina cruised slowly down Main Street and stopped in front of a small group of elderly ladies that were sitting on a bench near a small city square in the dark. The left woman had a shotgun leaning against the bench beside her. Sina felt Mac grew tense when she opened the door and called out, Excuse me, where's the sheriff's office? One of the ladies looked at her through thick glasses. Where do you come from, Afghanistan? Which brought a cackle of laughter from her peers. Actually, we are teachers on a survival field trip, Sina said, deadpanned. The sheriff? The ladies all pointed further down Main Street, and the bus set into motion again. Hospital, to the right, Caspar called out when he spotted the lighted neon red cross of a clinic that advertised surgery. Sina made the turn, parked the bus, and they helped their two injured crew members, Shiva and Gherkin, into the clinic. It was a bungalow-style hospital, with green floor and chairs in the reception that cried, Early 70s! The waiting room on this side was empty, and the nurse behind the counter was buried in paperwork. Only emergencies, she called without looking up. Emergencies are us, lady. Two gunshot wounds, Max said. Doctor around? The nurse looked up and saw the soldiers in full gear. Training accident? Real deal. There had been an attack on our convoy. Fits today's helter-skelter. First the complete power outage. Phones and television are still down. Lots of lights and households too. People are going crazy right now. And now you. She popped her head through the door behind her. Dark gunshot wound. A young Indian woman in her thirties came hurrying, white coat, stethoscope, and all. I am Doctor Gupta. Accident. Sina stared at Ava's watch around her wrist. It still showed the time and date. Both nurse and doctor were not infested by aliens. She gave Mac a thumb up. Mac answered patiently, "No." We have been attacked. I need to leave my men here in your care, and we have a dead body in the bus that I would like you to keep for us. We are not a morgue, Sergeant. Gupta raised an eyebrow. What do you do with anyone dying on your watch? The funeral home is next door. You might have him stored there. Mac gave Casper and Ludovic the instructions to organize a temporary resting place for Perkins' body. What is going on today? Gupta said while she gave the two injured men a quick triage. Are your attack and all these outages related? We can't do x-ray tonight. The outage fried something inside the machine. Does that hurt? She moved Gherkin's arm gently. Ouch, yes, the soldier winced. Might be broken. Blood okay, clotting fine. Took you a while to get here. We can't call your base to pick you up, unfortunately. All means of communication are down. Your men can't stay here for the night, sergeant. Sergeant? Gupta called. The rest of the soldiers were already gone. It was only a hundred yards more to the sheriff's office and the school bus stopped right in front. No cruiser in sight and the place looked deserted. Sina and Mac stepped into the building. The place was deserted, except for a young female deputy in her early twenties with a name tag Ballard. She looked up and gave them a long look. Well, 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 the army. Again. What now? she asked, craned her neck to look outside. Nice. Traded in your fancy helicopters for a bus? Sina actually grew red ears as she remembered that they might not have many friends with the local law after the lunchtime sheriff trunk incident Mac ignored the sarcasm and introduced Cena in himself. Is the boss around? Not here. He's cruising and tries to coordinate the deputies in the field. With the ongoing communication outage, they are all on patrol to put eyes on the potential trouble spots like supermarkets, banks and electronic stores. The town never looked that big before. No way to call him? He'll come in eventually, at least once every hour. But I can't tell you when, she said. It's important. We are, well, we might be the reason why the communication does not work, Mac said. She eyed Mac. I repeat, that exactly is the problem. No communication, no rover, no cell phones, she patted her desk phone. Not even the regular phone. Yeah, Mac looked at Sina. Any idea? We'll wait. What else can we do? The deputy glanced at her watch. He was here about forty five minutes ago, shouldn't be long. Mac and Cena raided the beverage vending machine in the police station's lobby and distributed cold soft drinks to the remaining gang in the school bus. Fifteen minutes later, a police four wheel drive arrived, and with the overweight Sheriff prototype, Cena had met last with Kimmick at the highway roadblock. He scratched his head at the school bus and the soldiers when they met in front of the station. You dropped injured GI Joes at the ambulance? He greeted them. Mac approached him. We did. Our transport was attacked earlier today, out on the highway. You're the SOBs that needed an attack helicopter to bring me back to town? Mac held his stare. File your complaints with the DOD. No eyes on our transport were the instructions. No exceptions. The sheriff chewed his gum for a few more moments. We saw smoke on the horizon way south earlier, but as we had orders not to take the road... Nothing you could have done, sir. All security support was neutralized by the enemy. This is an attack on the nation's security. We need to find out what's happening. We need your help. I need to keep the people of Veracity safe, so don't start looking at me to clean up your mess. We need weapons, lots of weapons, or ammunition. Veracity is a small town. We have 20 deputies. One is out sick and Ballard is maining the store, that leave nine pairs that are cruising the neighborhoods. The town is a powder keg, ready to explode with violence at any moment. If you can't call the authorities, you need to protect yourself, your family or your neighbors. At the same time, you have the seedy underbelly crawling out to test the water. Break-ins, rape, murder, looting. The sheriff spat out. So I need my own firepower. Go to hell. We need whatever you can spare. We can't spare, Mac angrily stepped forward to grab the sheriff by the arm. Listen. You have no idea what's going on. Looting and whatnot will be the least of our problems. There is a civilian army attacking us, well equipped. Some science fiction wonder weapon... A loud boom froze everyone, followed by a ratching reload. Deputy Ballard stood with a smoking riot gun, pointed into the air, then slowly redirecting at Cena, Sergeant MacDonald... You stand too close to the chief, so I can't shoot you without hurting him. But your sidekick is right in the no-miss zone. Step back, sergeant. Immediately or there will be another soldier down. Mac lifted his hand slowly, and the sheriff stepped away and freed his gun from his holster, freezing in midair. Six army rifles pointed at him from the school bus. Most of them were out of ammunition, But the sheriff and his deputy did not know that. Sina raised her arms. Such a foul-up was not worth being killed over. Mac slowly stepped back towards the bus. We are not here to threaten anyone, but we need to defend the U.S. Oh, the best idea I've heard so far today. You save the U.S., we save our town. Sensible division of labor. The sheriff had grown a reddish face. Today is crazy day, so I am giving you the benefit of the doubt. You came with good intentions, but now you leave, and we all go our ways and sort out our problems ourselves. Mac gave a small, tense nod. Sina placed one arm on his shoulder. Let's go, we'll find a way. He nodded again and walked backwards for a few steps, his eyes never leaving the deputy, then turned and climbed back into the bus. Sina nodded at the sheriff, entered behind him and pushed the door close lever. Behind the wheel again, she turned to Mac. Where to? Mac scratched his head. Where's the next base from here? Where we came from? Sina answered. But we can't drive there. The highway access is blocked by the bad guys. And our fuel range is 50 miles, if I can trust this pre-war dashboard. Any other bases? New Mexico? Casper checked the map under a flashlight. Holloman, 200 miles west, way too far. Clovis, about a 150 miles south, same distance as Kirtland, near Albuquerque. With this yellow machine, it will take us three hours minimum, assumed we'll find gas to fill it up while traveling. That's three hours' drive, one hour of palaver, three hours back with whatever weapons they've got ready, Mac calculated. We could be back with reinforcements by tomorrow morning. Sina shook her head. There is one catch. Where are the troops? Mac looked at her. What do you mean? The attack on the most secret object in the U.S. happened almost six hours ago. Where are the reinforcements? If I were in command, I would have sent everything that Uncle Sam got by now, she explained. Everyone looked at her as the truth started to sink in. You are right, Mac admitted. There must be something or someone keeping our units away, some effect of the mysterious weapon we are not experiencing here, but maybe the effects are even worse on the outer perimeter. I hate to say it, but we are on our own, Sina said. It must have to do with the outages that we experienced. Mac mused, some sort of protection that the bad guys put up, something that stops communication and even electricity overall. And it reaches out past the town. Casper threw in, such a thing does not exist. Neither does our spaceship, Sina pointed out. You think the object switched off our electricity and communication, Casper argued. Sina looked at her teammates, give me a better explanation. Everyone thought for a moment. Though, there is another theory, Sina slowly said. Kiddo, I'm curious, Mac folded his arms. The ship is not the source of the power phenomenon. The slug aliens, the sklones they organized the assault on the object, taking over humans, attacking the transport, intending to drive away with it. And they have this sort of electromagnetic weapon with them, somewhere in veracity or nearby. That would be a sweet opportunity indeed, Casper pointed out. If the alien-infested humans are able to activate it, then we are able to deactivate it. But we need weapons for that, Max said. And a plan, Sina added. The bus was quiet for a beat. Someone in the back said, And something to eat. This is it for this week's edition of The Transport, the sci-fi action thriller written and performed by Alex Ames. If you liked what you just heard, leave a comment in whatever platform you downloaded or listened to the podcast. If there are stars, star me, help me spread the good. And again, my shameless self-promoting plug, if you liked it so far, and can't bear the suspense buy the book if you can't bear the suspense buy the book and another shameless self-promotion if you liked what you heard and think that many of your potential customers might be listening to this podcast too feel free to contact me at alex.ains.writing at gmail.com or send me a private message on Twitter or Instagram at alexamesriding, one word. The middle section of this podcast could be reserved for you. And that's it, for real. Wherever you are, whoever you are, thank you. Take care. I hear you next time. This is Alex Ames. This was The Transport. Over and out.